Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Over the weekend, I had the opportunity to watch a version of the Woodstock concert movie. I had DVR'd it from earlier in the week. TCM has been doing a thing on Warner Brothers movies, and I didn't, which I didn't know, that uh, Woodstock, the album, and the movie were Warner Brothers. Anyway, so I watched it, and I put it on, and it's a four-hour director's cut, whatever that means. And apparently they added a couple of Janice cuts, and a couple of other artists got extra songs, and there's some extra documentary footage. I'd already seen Woodstock maybe half a dozen times. So, um... I don't think I ever have to watch it again. I was, I was not, it looked like ancient history to me looking at it. And I said, you know what? I don't, this isn't even appealing to look at now. I don't, and it used to be. It used to be fun to watch the movie, but it was tedious. And even sequences that I kind of enjoyed. I was like, come on, will you hurry up? I, was, I kept reaching for the fast forward button. Get to the end. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years after, they do an eight-minute version of I'm Going Home. I'm like, would you please get past this? I've seen all the film effects. The film effects have come and gone. You know, the, the three columns in the, in the widescreen and stuff like that. People don't do that anymore. Woodstock did win a, an Academy Award for Best Documentary, and it did innovate the, the, the concert documentary film. There's, I don't think there's any question about that. But I just don't think I can watch it anymore. It just seems too old. Now... I got another point about it, too, I just want to mention, that I don't think I'd ever thought about before. And Woodstock was really just the West Coast coming to upstate New York. A lot of the bands in Woodstock, and I don't know why I didn't think about this before. We've, maybe we've mentioned it, but I, it didn't stick. But most of the bands and most of the acts at Woodstock had been doing festivals for a couple of years, at least going back to 66, 67. We've, we looked at West Coast festivals for one of our episodes. And all of these bands were there. You know, Richie Havens was everywhere. Ten years afterwards, everywhere. Grateful Dead, pretty much everywhere. So it was a chance for the East Coast to get a taste of that, that West Coast vibe. Really kind of interesting. <laughs> I don't know why it never occurred to me before, or people don't make a big mention about that. There wasn't really a lot of East Coast music at the time, because all the psychedelic stuff was California. The Who played, so that was technically East East Coast. But don't forget... The Who had been in Monterey Pop, too. And they had played at Winterland or Fillmore West or whichever was running at the time. Yeah, they had played in those places. It, it is true that it, it was the it was kind of the end of the West Coast music taking over because two years after that, you start getting the British invasion and more New Yorkish East Coast music started developing. But it's like, see, it's funny. You can't watch it. It's a historical document. It's kind of like watching a Charlie Chaplin movie, right? Now, Very much like that. It's so old that the people dress so funny, even though we're of the age where we couldn't have been there, but our older siblings could have been there, that sort of thing. It was, it was certainly, they're certainly acceptable. Yeah. They're, what they were wearing was, and how they dressed and how they behaved was yes. very familiar to me. Yes, but it looks old now because it's old. Because even if we keep hearing that music, one TV series I watched recently at the end of the final episode, they had a Peter, Paul and Mary song, 
which I found really weird because no one knows Peter, Paul, and Mary. I forget which song it was. I didn't recognize it. I didn't know who it was. I had to look up to see who was singing it. It's it's like there is this time has stretched out from the mid to late 60s to the present. And we've said this so many times. There are, there are no decades. There are no time periods in popular music anymore. It's just one long continuum. And looking at Woodstock kind of reminds you of that in a way, because is there anything in Woodstock that is still that people still listen to? I mean, Jimi Hendrix playing the the Star Spangled Banner. OK, you're going to hear it because of what it is. Right. And and I think that's really moving seeing him in front of that empty field playing right. that song. And he's just, he he was on the last day. Most people had already left. Yeah. He, he might have been seeing 500,000 people, depending on what color acid he had taken. Um, <laughs> but when you look at something like. Sly and the Family Stone, that feels so old. Jefferson Airplane feels so, so old, right? Very old. Very even, old. Even if you're McCalkin and still playing like Uncle Sam Blues that they played in, in the concert, Shana Na is older than old, and we've talked about that in the past. It's as if there's a pivot point around Woodstock that things go down the hill on the left side and go go up the hill on the other side, something like that. I mean, we do hear some of those old songs, you know, Sympathy for the Devil at the end of a, a recent TV series. It's because the Rolling Stones are timeless. But it's true that the whole Woodstock thing represents a kind of a kind of mixture because you, you have Richie Havens with his beaten up guitar and no teeth and stuff like that. And then you've got the Who with, you know, beaten up guitars Townsend. and no teeth. But Pete Townsend doing his, you know, geriatric histrionics and, and that. And then and you've got Janis Joplin, who's dead. And you've got Jimi Hendrix, who's dead. You've got Crosby, Stills and Nash, who, you know, they're not far. Country Joe and the Fish. No one today has ever heard of Country Joe and the Fish other than if they've seen Woodstock. Even 10 years after. You, you've got to be a real aficionado to know who 10 years after was. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Now. You said that you watched the director's cut. It was four hours. And one of the things that they did with the director's cut is they released 143 minutes of 18 performances as bonus songs, including a 37 minute Turn On Your Love Light by the Grateful Dead, who did not make it into the film. And, you know, there's this mythology in Deadland that they never perform well on big occasions. But, man, they kicked ass on this song. Unfortunately, it was marred by this introduction by... I don't know if it was Wavy Gravy or or Cherry Garcia or whoever was reading poetry and ranting about stuff. And then kind of Pigpen just pushed him out of the way to start singing. But it's it's the only really long film we have of Pigpen singing Love Light. And, and for that alone, it's a historical document. I certainly don't deny that it's a historical document, but you've got to be into the, the history to want to watch it. You got to want to watch it. Now, I'll admit, I did enjoy seeing Sly and the Family Stone, but it's edited so badly. It's like they cut the, the medley up to sh make it fit. But I mean, there's some really great funk on that, on, on his performances, and it holds up. But again, who's Sly and the Family Stone? Yeah. You know, it's old music. And, um, and I even think modern people would think that that's old music. Exactly. Even though it's certainly valid as, a, as, as, listenable you could certainly listen to it and it's it sounds as good as it ever did but i've just like kind of had it it's like i just have i don't need to see it anymore I, my brain is full of all that stuff <laughs> one of my favorite songs and more for the visuals 
And the drum solo is Santana's soul sacrifice with, what is he, 18 years old, Michael Shreve? I mean, what a drum solo. And they edited a couple minutes out of the song in the film. I think the actual recording's a couple minutes longer. But I just, just watching him, the energy of him and the whole band and that kind of, that orchestra of Santana with the percussionists and everyone, it's like a living being. He was powerful. He really was. He had a powerful band. There was a lot of energy. You could say that about Sly and the Family Stone. That kind of funk is like, it's like a tank that you turn on, right? I think Sly was also in the, um, at the thing in Brooklyn. Yeah. So they must have packed up his bags and said, look, we got a, <laughs> we got a gig downtown. So, you know, I, I don't know what days he played at Woodstock and what day he played at that Brooklyn festival. But he was good in that, too. They were all playing concerts everywhere. The thing is, we, we kind of freeze a moment because it was a conurbation of a small city and a whole bunch of artists in one place, right? And we freeze that moment because there is, you think of all the Venn diagrams of the different artists that fit together. That wasn't your standard rock and roll festival. I mean... Well, I think the other, the, the other thing that made it big was how unusual for the Northeast, how unusual for upstate New York. How unusual not to anticipate this many people. How unusual that they didn't realize that the traffic was going to be tied up. As I said, this was something that the West Coast and the South had been doing for a couple of years. They knew how to deal with it. It's always interesting in Woodstock to see what the people who live there think. And they always say something, they always say something to the effect of, with, with small exceptions, that the kids are great. Yeah. The kids are really nice yeah. and polite. So it's really interesting how, you know, what the news about the hippies comes to the East Coast and you hear they're, they're a bunch of, you know, ne'er-do-wells. And it turns out there they are in your neighborhood and you're going, you know, the kids are really great. They're having a, they've been nothing but yes, sir, and no, sir, this, and yes, sir, that. I mean, knowing a little bit about how the hippies hung out in San Francisco, you only heard about the bad stuff. Well, but by 69, it was bad stuff. After 67... The scene had, had gotten really bad. And so you have this expectation that it's going to be just as bad. And they were surprised that it wasn't. They were really lucky. Imagine what could have happened with half a million people. They could have had a, a cholera epidemic. They could, you know, <laughs> yeah, anything possible. could have happened. And they were really lucky because you can tell in the documentary that they were high all the time, the, the, the guys who would produce the concert, and that they had no clue what they were doing. They really didn't. It's really funny because, you know, one of the guys had been a, is, was a veteran. I can't think of his name was a veteran of West Coast festivals. But then you go up and you see Bill Graham every so often pops up in the film. It's like, what's what's he doing there? And there are other promoters and other backers that show up occasionally. You don't know who they are. Well, John Sher, he was the East Coast guy, so he was probably there, even as early as 69. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. Well, he had the they, Fillmore. Didn't he have the Fillmore? Um, no, no. Capitol Theater in Passaic was John Sher's thing. The Fillmore was Bill Graham's. Yeah. The Fillmore East. But the Academy of Music might have been John Cher. In any case, it was a mafia back then. And yeah, yeah it, was. <laughs> it was really limited. And let's not forget to mention that a very famous filmmaker was one of the people shooting the film, Martin Scorsese. In fact, one of the things that they made mention of is that the person who edited Woodstock later became Scorsese's longtime editor. So despite what I said about the bad editing, I guess the person uh, made up for it. In other ways. And well, it was innovative with the split screens. Oh, yeah. It was, and particularly because this was the time when you were getting the wide screens in movie theaters, right? It came out in 70, I think, early 70. So you had the wide, the, the cinema, 
Parama Cinerama. Cinerama. Was Cinerama. That, was well, they call that a lot of different companies have yeah. different names for it. I'm yeah. sure Warner Brothers had, you know, Warner Wide or something <laughs> like that for it. That technique had been used before. In fact, I remember distinctly like a, a movie like The Boston Strangler, uh, which came out way before Woodstock, used that multi-panel thing. Also, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, the Joe Cocker documentary. I don't know if that came out before or after. But they use it also to an advantage. I think it was after. Yeah. A Abel Gantz's Napoleon famously did that with three different cameras shooting scenes and then splicing them together. In the early 80s, they did a reconstruction of that film with, I think it was Francis Ford Coppola's father who conducted the orchestra. So with a live orchestra in Radio City Music Hall, it was really spectacular because it was only in the end when they pull the curtains off to the sides and you get the triple screen. It was quite, quite something. That's originally how Cinerama worked. They had three cameras and they had, like, if you've ever seen How the West Was Won, um, some of the early television transcriptions, uh, you can see the seams of the screens because they didn't really have any other way to do it. They'd have to pan a, a TV camera across, you know, the three screens that they were shooting. And you'd occasionally see that, this whitish seam. They don't, doesn't work that way anymore. They, they use computers. They use computers now. <laughs> so I'm wondering, it's interesting you bring up this Woodstock Festival film. Why do we not see big festival films anymore? I mean, lots of concerts are filmed. There are lots of music documentaries. But where is the big Coachella Festival film? Wait a minute. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Coachella. Okay. Because when Coachella was on, they broadcast four or six stages live one night. That's now, what have I been... Not the same, what? not the same. Glastonbury, the BBC broadcasts all the stuff on the main stage and some of the other stuff. I'm talking about the film. Yeah, but I never see it. I never see it. And like somebody said, you got to go see Coachella. And I did. And I said, oh, look who's playing tonight. And I watched Gorillaz. And it was like I had to wait up and I had to watch scenes change and thing, and watch bands that I wasn't that particularly interested in. But I never see it. And I'm really surprised that, I don't know. I'm just surprised that more doesn't you don't see it more often over uh, here. What I'm talking about is an actual film where there's one song by one artist, two songs by another, where you're getting the whole feel of a festival. Now, festivals are different today. They're not single stages like they were back in the day, right? So I, I think in Woodstock they had this sort of circular thing that turned so they could switch bands quickly. So if they don't have something like that, it took a long time to switch the, the gear for the different bands. But why is there not a Bonnaroo film of, you know, Bonnaroo 1997 with all these great bands? Why does that not exist? There are certainly recordings like that. I don't know if, if it would sell because I think my first preference would be to see Bonnaroo live or Coachella live. And then a film um, a digest of it would not be as satisfying when I know that I could have streamed it live or maybe see the whole thing streamed again live. So I'm not sure that there's any anything um, compelling about a, a, a festival digest. Film. Well, back then it was unique. There had been other festival films. Absolutely. Oh, Woodstock? Sure. Even Monterey Pop was unique, but they were only on one stage and it looked fairly traditional. No, I mean, the films were unique. You couldn't see this in any other way. You couldn't turn on the TV and watch oh, we were right. stuff yeah. from yeah. these things. So it was the only way people were seeing this. And Woodstock, in a way, is also immortalizing the death of the 60s, 
right? So it, so it's freezing all this stuff saying, here we are, 1969, this is what it looked like, remember this. And as we're doing more than 50 years later, or six, more than 60 years later, my God. Oh, cut it out. No, more than 50 years later. Well, you, you better get your math very good together. Today. You need to watch a, a, a film on math is what you need. To a watch. film on math, yeah. yeah that would be helpful. So Woodstock is a good example of the, we recently talked about remastering, re-recording, et cetera, new versions and stuff. And they did a new version of the audio. Was it two years ago? I'm, I'm, you know, with COVID and everything, there's like this gap. It was like, we're in 2023 and last week was 2019, that sort of thing. So I can't really remember. But they did a box set of 38 CDs, which contains almost all the music from the festival in the order in which it was performed. It's called Woodstock Back to the Garden, a definitive 50th anniversary archive. Apparently there were a few uh, songs from Jimi Hendrix's estate that did not authorize the release. One and a half songs from Shannon's set were not captured on tape. And other than that, they got everything. It was initially sold for $800, sold out immediately. I wonder, uh, how was Woodstock recorded? I th for some reason, I always thought it was direct to the film, but I guess not. I guess they must have had a separate audio thing going oh, on. Oh, no, no. The audio was, was recorded separately because the soundtrack album was a huge hit when it came out shortly after... It didn't take long for them to release the record. The original album was released in May 1970. So, what, six months, eight months after the concert? Mm, yeah, I'm not sure. I forget, what, August, wasn't it? Wasn't it held in August? No, May, May 11th, 1970. It was recorded in August, so. No, no, that's what I mean. So it took them 10 months? Yeah. Woodstock 2 was released in 1971, and that was a two-album set with a bunch of stuff, more stuff by, the, I guess, the more popular artists, Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills, Nestle. You know what? I don't even remember listening to I don't that. remember. I'm looking at the cover. I do remember seeing the cover, but I don't remember ever listening to it. But they released, there's a whole series of Woodstock albums of best of and remixed and remastered and remarketed and all of that. So... I mean, it is a time capsule, right? When, when, when humanity has destroyed itself and aliens come in 10,000 years, they'll find a copy of the Woodstock album. They'll find a working turntable, of course, because people, you know, bought turntables, didn't use them. So there's going to be plenty. They'll be frozen. In, they'll be frozen in the yeah. muck that we are, yeah. are bombarded and, and they'll listen to this and they'll try and figure out what it meant. They'll see this as some sort of... I don't know, epic poem. Well, it explains everything. I mean, it's, you know, even without sound, you kind of get the idea that the, ba the the producers are having a little bit of a problem and you can see all the problems. No, I'm talking about just the music, you know? the music itself. Oh, the music is, oh, okay. Well, I mean, sociologically too, there's a lot of stuff in there yeah. as well. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating period. And it is interesting that that stuff sort of died out not long after because... I mean, the big festivals continued, and we have a lot more now, but the festival films, a few years after that, I'm trying to think, uh, Led Zeppelin's song remains the same. That was just a concert film. Yes, Songs was a concert film, so I can't really... There were probably some other festival films. I can't remember them being popular in any way. Is there an Isle of Wight film? But that would have been 69 or 70, right? Yeah. In fact, that would have been 69 around the same time as Woodstock, and that's why Dylan didn't play Woodstock, because he had been contracted to play Isle of Wight. See, uh, any recordings that I've heard from Isle of Wight sounds like it was recorded on film. 
And I'm like, well, they must have filmed it. Come on, it was a huge thing. But I don't know if there's a documentary or anything like that. There is a short film of it, yeah. I, re- I remember seeing it on the BBC once, a short film. Like, I want to say an hour and 20 minutes, that kind of thing. Not a lot. But yeah, I guess all of this is finished, though. The festival film is finished, even though apparently millions of people go to festivals every year. I mean, I see I see Glastonbury here. It's it's like this ritual where you get your wellies in your tent and you go because, you know, it's going to rain and it's going to be muddy. And it, it just feels it feels like they're cosplaying in a way. Well, you know, we have a there's a festival. We have it. There's a festival every summer called Boston Calling here in Boston. And I kind of get that sense. I mean, no offense to people who like going to Boston Calling, but it really does seem like, look, we got a festival. We can go to it. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, it's just a bunch of bands playing outside. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Where the sound isn't great. I'm sorry. I I don't mean to offend anybody's sensibilities about live music, but I, I don't go to live shows anymore because I, you know, well, we talked about that. I don't want to do that anymore. And anyway, outdoor sound is not good. No, uh, but but again, it's in the summer. It's peace, love, cool, groovy, psychedelic, right on, far out. You know, it's it's that. I guess it is a cosplay to some degree, but yeah. but it's fun cosplay. I mean, if someone said, "Here's a ticket to Boston Calling. Go any day you want," I'd go. If it's outside, I wouldn't go indoors, but I might go outside. Like at least I could hang out at the periphery. Okay. Do you, do you hear that? If anyone if anyone wants to get Doug a ticket to Boston Calling. I would like Doug to go and film some of this to see him at an actual concert. Oh, that's an idea. Like nobody's filming it. Nobody has a phone. No, no, no. With your iPhone to just film you at the concert to see what it looks like for you to see a live concert. <laughs> just me. Oh, I see. Right. Put a, I could put a camera on my head. We just walk around. Yeah. Take, take one of those body cams yeah, and walk around a... and do a thing. See what it's like. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. How do you got an extract, by the way, there, uh, partner? I do, actually. I just posted an album from Apple Music on my website. It's called The Manchester Gamba Book, and it had nothing to do with the the, the Hacienda or Factory Records. This is a book of uh, solo music for Viola da Gamba. It was published between around 1660 and 1680. One of my favorite instruments, the resonance of the Viola da Gamba, the sound of the gut strings, and this particular solo repertoire, which used all kinds of different tunings to get different effects, particularly with the double stops to have different kinds of tunings. This is a recording on three CDs, which is about two and a half hours. It's 46 pieces from a book that contained 246 works in tablature. So it's the biggest collection, as far as I know, of solo gamba music from that period. Some of my favorite music. So the Manchester Gamba book, link in the show notes. Doug, what have you got? I am going to be listening to Eli Paperboy read his first so-called debut album called Come and Get It from 2010. Eli Paperboy Reed is actually from my neck of the woods. He uh, He's from the Boston area, did some recording here. I wasn't aware of that stuff, but this record in particular is the one that he got on his first major label. He is a vocalist. He does soul, R&B, Motown sort of stuff. Joe Tex, James Brown, Al Green, Michael Jackson, it's all in there. You know what I mean? He's really powerful. And in fact, you know, when I say I'm going to listen to the album, I, 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 I don't think I'm going to actually do that. I occasionally hear his tunes sprinkled throughout my playlists, which is why I thought I should mention him uh, in this portion of the program. And then I went to listen to the album just to make sure it's as good as I remembered it. And it is. It's terrific. 
but I couldn't listen to more than like three tracks at a time. Each song is like three minutes and it's jam packed with great music. It's just the band is great. He's great. All the, like I said, all the, uh, all the stuff that it's derived from is there very authentically. Uh, it's just terrific sounding stuff. So give it a listen if you dig that kind of stuff, but listen carefully, only one or two songs at a time. And then you got to go sit down and relax a little bit. Eli Paperboy Reed, Come and Get It is my next track. This was episode number 256 of the next track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's listener support that keeps us going. Thank you very much. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.